when you get big, you start to look at the threats and you want to lock them down. And so I think it's interesting that Sam Altman might be saying, oh, okay, the threat to me is that NVIDIA actually has a lot of leverage on me. And so what I need to do is create an entire new ambitious, massively ambitious company just so that NVIDIA doesn't have that leverage over what I do at the software layer. You're listening to The Startup Podcast. This is a Reacts episode. Industry insiders having frank debates about the latest tech, politics, and business news. Whether you're a founder, investor, or operator in a startup, you'll gain insights into how current events connect to broader themes and trends that impact your startup, your investments, and your day-to-day operational decisions. The conversation starts now. Hey, I'm Chris Saad. I'm Emil Michael. And I'm Yanev Bernstein. On today's episode, we're going to discuss Sam Altman's $7 trillion fundraising. You heard that right, $7 trillion with a T. NVIDIA's skyrocketing valuation. When will it stop and is it really justified? And we'll spend a little bit of time talking about Lyft's earning report, their monumental mistake, how it affected the stock and what the hell is going on over there. All that and more on this week's The Startup Podcast Reacts. Stay tuned. This episode of the Startup Podcast is brought to you by Vanta. You might know that sinking feeling. You're about to land a big contract when they ask about compliance. SOC 2, ISO, PCI, Essential 8. You've just snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. Not anymore. Vanta massively accelerates your compliance efforts and allows you to get those life-changing deals back on track. Don't wait until it's panic stations, though. Get started with Vanta today. They're offering 20% off their prices just for TSP listeners. Do yourself a favor. Hit pause. Go to vanta.com slash TSP. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com to get that 20% off. Okay, so our first topic today is Sam Altman's rumored fundraising of $7 trillion for a new AI chip company. So what do we think about this? Is it crazy? What does it mean? What is going on? Sorry, I think Chris, you misspoke because surely he's trying to raise $7 billion. No, no, I didn't misspeak. Trillion, T, trillion dollars. This is more money by many orders of magnitude that anyone has ever raised for VC before. That is absolutely insane. Okay, I think you guys are reading too much Business Insider because he is not raising five to seven trillion dollars for open ai to go spend on chip manufacturing right the headline sounds like great awesome right but what i understand he's trying to do is create a coalition of investors who collectively invest in a chip company that happens to service OpenAI as a customer, as a part of a revenue guarantee or some sort of commitment that when it's built, they'll have a huge user, which is very different than saying, hey, give it to me. I'm going to go do this. (laughs) So let's get that straight. The second thing is the number, I don't know where it came from. Does anyone think TSMC or NVIDIA required that many T's? To build themselves they're not like it doesn't make any sense so this seems like the first slide of a crazy deck that business insider got a hold of and pushed out to the world and now we're talking about it which is exactly what they wanted us to do yeah right of course he's not personally raising for himself it's not like he's gonna go take that money and stick it in his bank and he's not raising it for open ai that company is well funded and is off building ai sounds like he's spinning up a separate venture, a separate company dedicated to building AI chips to compete ostensibly with NVIDIA, right? And so this is a fairly standard process to go build a new company, raise capital for it, have a vision, have a mission. It's a separate entity. And I think in this case, the differences are 
A, he has a lot of momentum and buzz around him personally. OpenAI has a lot of momentum and buzz around what they've built and the new era of AI that they've kickstarted. And in this case, OpenAI would presumably be the first best customer of this AI chip company. So it has a huge advantage going in. And so these are the dynamics going on and they're fairly typical, except the fact that it's a $7 million raise, or at least this is the reporting. This is the rumor. So what is going on there? So, so I think what's really going on is, number one, everyone in the world agrees that there are huge bottlenecks in chip manufacturing with TSMC, ASML, and NVIDIA. And that's a big problem geopolitically. It's a big problem competitively and technologically that there's no counterforce to that. And a big part of creating a competitor to these companies will take a lot of money and frankly, a lot of time. And probably a lot of the money is to try to make it take less time. The second thing I've been hearing out there, which I haven't sort of understood as well as I do now, is the power requirements to power the chips and the data centers and the compute for all AI applications and how no one in the world's ready for that yet. And we already have an energy problem, right? We already have a like, oh, coal to clean and windmills and all this stuff. If you believe that AI applications are going to require three to five X the compute power that we have today, we have a big problem in the world. So solving that, whether it's nuclear, you know, batteries, solar, all those things is an investment that's not climate change oriented, but to power the AI revolution. So I think that's a thing. And I don't know how to quantify that. So I think this is not serious. And just because it's not serious doesn't mean there's nothing here, right? So Emil, I think you, you floated one possibility, which is that this is Business Insider trying to get clicks and get people talking about it. I think the other possibility is it is Sam Altman trying to get people talking about it. You'll notice he's not denied this at all. And in fact, he's been kind of playing along with it a bit on Twitter. Sam Altman is actually a bit of a classy troll. He's kind of like a classy version of Elon in some ways. And so I actually feel that this is a big troll, but not one that is just for fun. I think there is something here. Now, raising trillions of dollars is insane this is not just the biggest fundraise in history were it to happen it would probably be so by a factor of 100x or something like that people do not raise trillions of dollars for context the combined value of the two most valuable tech companies in the world apple and microsoft is about six trillion dollars so he would be raising the entire market cap of apple and microsoft it's not going to happen i don't think he's trying to make it happen but one theory that I have here is that he is actually trying to raise for something like this. And, you know, folks who negotiate, Emil, you're the expert here, right? Like very familiar with anchoring bias and whatnot. And I think the idea here is maybe to throw out such a crazy figure, such an outlandish number that when we go back to it, it's like, no, the raise wasn't five to seven trillion dollars. It was 50 billion dollars. People are like, oh, that seems more reasonable. Whereas in fact, no one's ever raised near that either. It seems obvious on the face of it that no one is going to go give him five or seven trillion dollars up front. No, I don't think anyone has that money. Perhaps what he's, as you, you described it as anchoring bias for negotiation, perhaps what it's really more about is like, hey, this is a big, scary, audacious goal, and it will likely require over the course of whatever, pick a time horizon, five, 10, 20 years, something in the order of, you know, trillions of dollars to be successful. And we are currently raising the first tranche of that in order to go do this thing. But I am not naive to the fact that it's going to take a lot of capital and we're going to go get this done. Maybe that's the way it's framed. And so someone yeah. saw that number in there as a pragmatic thing. Like, like this, is, this is going to take trillions and here's where we're starting. And they've taken that and said, oh, he's raising that up front. And that's probably the most likely thing I think that happened. 
It's just the first page of a slide deck that says over the next 20 years, the world is going to have to invest $7 trillion in terms of chips, power, data center. Do you want to be a part of that? Right. And yeah. it's, it's going to start with something. And it's an anchoring bias, like maybe, but like, is he wrong? Let's start with, is that wrong? No, I'm not saying that it is. I'm not saying that it is. Yeah. So in 10 years, is AI and the way we use it going to change our fundamental assumptions about what the world needs in terms of chips, data centers, power? And if so, by how much and who's going to do it? I think we're saying all a version of the same thing, right? Which is in the deck, there might be a number, which is five to seven trillion. And, you know, Yanev, you're saying maybe it's trying to anchor the negotiation. I'm saying it's possibly saying, hey, we're going to need to invest huge amounts of money here. Now let's get started. Emil, you're saying the whole world is going to invest this amount of money. And we're talking about engaging in a piece of that. This is the market opportunity, actually. The point being someone like Business Insider has taken that number in a deck out of context and said he's raising that much money right now. And it's just ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, maybe the thing, like I talk about anchoring, maybe another sort of slightly different way of thinking about it is we're changing the Overton window. Now, the Overton window is basically what is considered generally acceptable conversation. And it's usually used to talk about more political discourse stuff, right? But I think it can also be like, what is a reasonable amount of money to spend building a startup in AI? And I think it's like, yeah, we're stretching that and saying, okay, we're not stretching it all the way to 5 trillion, but we're stretching it to a much bigger number than it is at the moment. Yeah, I think that's really great. It's, it's worth lingering on the Overton window a little bit, actually, just to make it very clear for people, right? So the Overton window is what is acceptable speech, right? So you could say, you know, A is okay, but B is not. And someone says, well, C, <laughs> like they go, they go outside the window of acceptable speech. And then people kind of move towards C a little bit because C is crazy, but they just move over a little bit. And now all of a sudden A and B is okay, but C is, is the one that's the outlier. And so by saying, hey, five, seven trillion, what he's saying is, is a, like a lifetime legacy project. We have to recalibrate our Overton window. Right. Now let's engage with the numbers with that new framing in mind. And, and I, I think, Yanev, you're right. I, th I think we're all saying a version of this is a number in a deck to set context and it's been taken out of context. Maybe it's achieved exactly what was intended. Like I do like the evil genius master plan or not evil, just the, the genius tricksy master plan. So now we're talking about that. And I actually wanted to sort of use that and bring in our second topic, which is perhaps not really a separate topic at all, which is that the market cap of NVIDIA, which is the company that provides all the chips for the AI revolution, is about to exceed the market cap of Alphabet, parent company of Google. And so I think what we're seeing here is that in that context, the amount of concentration, the amount of value that the manufacturing of high-end GPUs for AI is the bottleneck in the AI revolution. And at the moment, there's only one company that can do it. There's a lot of space here to make a lot of money because of such a concentration of power in that supply chain. I think that goes to Sam's point, which is yeah. if you have a bottleneck and that bottleneck is causing a market cap frenzy of going from 200 billion to 2 trillion in a year or whatever the increase in NVIDIA, then that's a danger to the marketplace. There has to be an alternative. Unfortunately, building an alternative in these chip factories and these fabs takes typically five, 10 years. It is a legacy project. And what are the other legacy projects that have to go alongside it to account for what this sort of new AI world needs? Stock market fluctuations are very hard to say like that's real or that's not real. It is true that like people are like, shit, I want to invest in this. I want the picks and shovels approach. And 
making videos of picks and shovels. They sell this thing that no one else sells and no one else could buy and they can't sell enough of. And no one else could spin up to produce what they sell for five to 10 years. So shit, that's worth a lot. I mean, it's interesting, like, you know, Ben Thompson and Stratechery, he often talks about the fact that you have like a, a supply chain and generally most of the value capture accrues to one part of that supply chain and everything else needs to plug into it. And what Sam might be saying, so I think this is really interesting. I'm just figuring this out as we talk, is that actually for all the excitement around open AI, if you look at the AI supply chain, where's the value capture going to happen? It's probably right now going to happen at the chip level. So you could easily be looking at a world in five years from now where open AI is a lot smaller than NVIDIA because NVIDIA is really the dominant player in AI from a making money point of view. And just to add to this, why are the Azure and Google Cloud and AWS parts of these companies driving the valuations of these overall companies? Because how do you use NVIDIA chips? It's through these clouds. And why is Microsoft giving credits for equity? that's coming back as revenue because it's easy for them to do. I mean, there are some picks and shovels winners here so far that are saying like, we don't know, OpenAI, whoever, but we're going to process that in our cloud and our data center with these chips. And so far, they're driving the stock price increases of these companies, I think. So actually, I wanted to talk about Google and draw an analogy here because I think it's really interesting. I think Google is a company that sort of lost its way a bit in recent years, but for a long time, it was actually strategically quite masterful in ways that maybe weren't that obvious, right? So search and ads were its primary and still remain its primary revenue source. And I remember, you know, I was working there when first they released Chrome and then they bought and released Android and created an ecosystem around Android. And then they did Google Maps and all this stuff. And people were like, why do they keep building these products and then giving them away for free, why are they doing this? It doesn't seem to make sense. And the reason it made sense is that they saw the threat to their core business was if somebody could intermediate them and take control of distribution away from them. And so all of these investments, I think Chrome and Android most notably, were really expensive investments that were defensive. From a user point of view, they were completely different from Google search and ads. From Google's strategic point of view, what they were was locking up control of distribution between a person and seeing Google's ads so nobody could get in the middle. And those were incredibly valuable investments that only made sense in the context of that overall ecosystem. And so that's what happens when you get big, you start to look at the threats and you want to lock them down. And so I think it's interesting that Sam Altman might be saying, oh, okay, the threat to me is that NVIDIA actually has a lot of leverage on me. And so what I need to do is create an entire new ambitious, massively ambitious company just so that NVIDIA doesn't have that leverage over what I do at the software layer. Yeah, I think it's about leverage and defensibility, but I think it's also about opportunity and capitalizing on value creation, right? He is, he personally, his personal brand is at the center of the AI revolution. He is, you know, the loudest voice in the room when people are looking at who has credibility, who has brand equity, who has the right kind of voice and vision. He personally is at that intersection. And so why wouldn't you think about the world as a portfolio strategy? You've launched an ecosystem or a, a new platform era and you want your finger in as many parts of that ecosystem as possible, which I do think for the reasons of threat mitigation, but also for the reasons of value creation and capture, right? And I do think it's a little bit, it is the pointiest example of how his representation that he's making no money at OpenAI and has no equity is a little bit of a farcical, disingenuous statement, right? He is in a position to make just infinity money personally out of his involvement in OpenAI. And so that's, that's just something to observe. It's not, you know, judgment. It's just something that's true. 
Look, my view is that the Android and the Google Play Store is a huge moneymaker. It might have started out defensive, but it's like free money, right? Like every other non-Apple phone in the world has some version of Android and has to use the App Store and do the payments and the cuts and all that stuff. That is icing on the cake. Yeah, yeah, icing on the cake. So maybe like maybe it started defensively, but it turned into a very smart thing to do. But the cake is the defense. Like that's why they built the thing. Sure. And I feel like cake is sure. it, but, but and, and Chrome is the most popular browser in the world. And yes, it distributes Google search. But here's the thing is, I guess I want to make sure that our founders who talk to and listen to this podcast understand, and Chris, you and I have experienced this. When a guy like Travis looked down at the street, I remember being in a hotel room and a balcony looking down the street in New York. He's like, someday I want all those cars to be Ubers. And he meant it. And what he meant was like, I think we could actually change transportation, the whole system. And it's a multi-trillion dollar idea. I can imagine Sam saying the same thing, which is this idea is so important and so big that I can't be throttled by anyone. And the world should care about this. And frankly, the world does care about it. Like independent of AI, we care that TSMC is at risk in Taiwan from a Chinese overtake. Like the world cares about that, right? And he's leveraging sort of the fact that the world cares about that into this proposal, I guess. And I think the world's listening for a good reason. This is actually what I wanted to pivot the subject into, actually, guys, which is what does entering the chip space and raising large amounts of money, whatever the money amount is, what is that signal? What should we learn from that as founders and investors in, in tech? And you just put your finger on it, Emil, and, and it was what I wanted to talk about, which is when the very best founders look at the world and they look at the problem domain that they've chosen to enter, they don't think to themselves, geez, I'd really like to scratch the surface here. Geez, I'd like to be a 5% player. Geez, I'd like to nudge the world a little bit. They say, I want to take the oxygen out of the room. I want to disrupt the status quo. I want some 80% of this activity to migrate to my platform. And they mean it. And it's easy to imagine Sam Altman thinking that about open AI, because AI seems so on the face of it disruptive. But every founder in every category that is an amazing founder believes that about their category. And that's what struck me the most by being in the same room as Travis is just he believed it in his DNA and he made you believe it. And Mark Zuckerberg, as I was saying in the last Reacts episode, he believes that Facebook and Meta are the most important communication platform on the planet. He believes that in his DNA and he doesn't want that to be misused to hurt children. Sam Altman believes it in his DNA and he's acting as if, and I'm trying to localize this to all founders, right? It doesn't mean you go build the chip company because <laughs> that might not be your thing, but Think about it as if what happens if we take this over? How do we need to act to take it over? What considerations, what actions, what speed, what hustle, what quality of execution? And so I think this is really a model to learn from. This is how the best founders and, and operators think. I mean, these exceptions are the exception, right? We're talking about a few founders a year. I have a lot of admiration for that thinking because it does cause change. Sometimes it fails, but Elon Musk, you know, your favorite guy to talk about, Adam, Love that guy. said, I'm going to launch a bunch of satellites that cover the world with the internet access. And he just did it. Holy yeah. shit. Yeah. <laughs> Holy cow. So without that outsized ambition, even if you have to walk it back, as you say, because it sets a marker, you could look at it and you have to, at least I admire it. And I say, wow, 
there's a lot to admire. I mean, you know, and even if you fail, right? If you say I'm going to hit the moon and you hit the treetops, at least you're aiming in the right trajectory. And like, so failing is failing better than everybody else. If you aim low, you'll hit low. You know, it just animates and motivates everybody, and it sets the bar at a completely, completely different place. I can't remember who had this framework, ABZ or ABZ for the North Americans, right? Where it's like the Z is you want to have this massive ambition and then you work backwards, but you don't have to work out every single step between A and Z. Instead, you need to know what the big picture is and what are the next couple things you can do that take you closer and that you want to work on in intricate detail and have all your focus. And yeah, you know, for all the shit I like to hang on Elon Musk, like, you know, I think his Z or Z is to take humanity interplanetary. And honestly, he's made more progress on that with SpaceX than anyone else has, than NASA has for quite a while. Now, whether that is a goal he'll ever achieve, I don't know. But the whole point is, he's generating a hell of a lot of value along the way, regardless. And so, yeah, that big ambition, without that big ambition, a lot of the stuff that is value generating today never would have been built. Yeah, I mean, at the risk of turning this into an EDU episode, like there's so little of this in day-to-day operational teams at least in my experience. And I'm not talking about even moonshots or covering the orbits with satellites or replacing all cars on the road. I'm talking about, hey, we have a project to build. And when you start thinking about the requirements of that project, it comes out pre-compromised. Well, legal wouldn't let us, engineering couldn't, sales can't, our revenue wouldn't. And before the product managers even open their mouth, they've compromised all aspects of the thing they're trying to build. I spend a great deal of my time in my advisory work just encouraging people to let go of the constraints for just a moment, just a moment, not too long, calm down, and just imagine what is the ideal version of this thing? What is it that we're trying to get to? Then we can pragmatically engage with the details and push through the obstructions. But yeah, the compromise is baked in before people even get started. And so just very pragmatically, we always want to encourage founders to to push past that. So two comments, like the first one where you might see showmanship or salesmanship. I see sometimes just ambition and they actually believe this. So I more admire it than I'm like, well, this is like a cynical play to like get a lot of buzz. And the second thing is, is that, and this is very important, very few people have this capability to do it to the extreme that Elon, Travis, Sam have been able to do it. And I do worry about telling every founder that they have to be that because they don't have to be that to have a successful company necessarily. But you have to have vision. I guess there's degrees of vision. But I mean, yeah, not but, everything but, can change the world. But let me, so let me say a few things on that. I do think calling it showmanship or thinking that it's mainly showmanship is, I think, derisive and dismissive. I think it's a form of tall poppy syndrome or what have you, where it's like, oh, that's just like flashy nonsense. And I I so much agree with you, Emil. This is ambition. And it's also force of will. They are exerting their will on the universe. And they understand that the universe is far more permeable than most people believe. But the difference between a great founder and a delusionary one between Elizabeth Holmes and Travis Kalanick is their willingness and effectiveness at engaging with the details of that vision and doing the hard work, putting their shoulder to the wheel to make it happen and to know when to stop making promises that are dangerous or that are disconnected from reality. And the last thing I just want to say is, Emil, you said, you know, not all founders are like that and we need to be careful. Not all ideas are changing the world. No, but too many founders are the polar opposite of that. 
they're pre-compromised. So when I say to most founders, be more ambitious, I don't necessarily mean become Travis. I mean, just step into the light a little bit. You're over-indexed in the wrong direction. So asking people to be more like that may move them five or 10% in the right direction. Fair enough, I understand. This episode of the Startup Podcast is brought to you by Vanta. The team at Vanta are passionate about helping you secure your business by vastly cutting down on the time to get compliant with frameworks like ISO 27001, SOC 2, and Essential 8. Vanta lets you close deals, sleep better at night, and get back to building your product. Help yourself and help the podcast by going to vanta.com slash TSP for an exclusive 20% off deal. So this is the perfect segue. I like how the arc of the stories and the story are fitting together because the next thing we wanted to talk about was Adam Newman and his attempt to rebuy WeWork. Now, there was a guy with a lot of ambition, also one of the greatest incinerators of capital in startup history. And now he is trying to rebuy the company that he sent into bankruptcy protection, pennies on the dollar. What do we think about this? <laughs> I mean, WeWork's a complex thing for me because <laughs> when you think about Airbnb or DoorDash or any of the companies that were built in the post-global financial crisis era, and you stretch your mind to think what they could be, like you can imagine what those things could be and how big they'd be. WeWork, I never imagined it, so I have a hard time under like I I never felt like oh my god, this is a fifty billion dollar company. So him rebuying it, I'm like, sure, like rebuy it. Why not? Better than some like debt guys owning it. Give it a shot. Maybe he has a vision, but I never understood it in the first place. So it's hard for me to understand now. You know, firstly, I don't think WeWork is a traditional Silicon Valley style tech company. I think it's a property company and property management company and the software advantage and therefore the scale advantage is moderate at best, maybe not existent. And so it's hard to think about it in venture terms, in software terms, in tech company terms. I think it has dynamics that are weirdly placed in our industry that it shouldn't necessarily be placed there. I think it's benefiting from the inventions and disruptions of the tech industry, you know, disconnecting work from companies and temporality and moving people around, all this sort of stuff. But I don't think it's a tech company in the strictest sense. I also think thinking of him as an incinerator of cash, that might be true because it was overplayed how much of a tech company it is. But I think all of these stories, you really can't judge where they are until the end. Some people call it wasting money. Some people call it investing. But when you, as we said earlier, you have to have a big ambition tempered by engagement with the details. And the details in this case are it's not a tech company. It's a property and property management company. And so it's hard to see how you square that circle, given that there aren't the economies of scale that you expect. But I still, I admire the ambition still, and I still also believe in the vision to the degree that temporary relationships with assets, whether it's office space or cars, is a real thing. And it's going to become more of a real thing over time. What's the business model? What's the software advantage? Who's the right leader? Those are details that I don't know if Adam Newman's the right guy to figure out, but I think it's on trend. Let's say that. I mean, they're pretty big details. The reason I think it fits so nicely into what we were talking about before around ambition and you talked about showmanship. I think one could argue that Adam Newman was a good example of all hat, no cattle sort of showmanship where he was great at telling a story, but he was not good at actually running the business. And if you talk about that ABZ again, right, if he had this idea that every office was a WeWork, right, and he had that flexibility and everything, there was no clear plan to get there because part of a clear plan is to have suitable economics. And WeWork never had suitable economics, still doesn't have suitable economics. And 
you know, exactly to the point that you said, Chris, and I think, you know, that's what you were getting out of Mill as well. We work in a tech company. We work is an office company. It's an office space company. The ambition untethered by the reality and the connection to the details is what undid it and what undid its founder. And I think that's the big difference between that and, you know, what OpenAI is doing, which is like building real tech with the proper sort of economic structure that allows it to scale. Let me give you the counter argument here. Okay. Sure. So Adam Newman gets in a car with Masa, right? This is a famous story. And Masa's got his iPad. And he says, he writes a number like $3 billion to you for X percent of the company. Adam Newman goes, sweet. He said, on the condition that you grow this fast, you send this many leases, you do blah, 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 blah. And then, you know, a year later, it's another $5 billion, another $10 billion. So he was given capital to build on this idea and maybe he spent it too fast. But the idea is not a bad idea and maybe it's not a tech multiple, but this company sort of like shot up and because it shot up, it shot down fast. Maybe the answer was it was a slow grower because certainly post-COVID, you're like, yeah, this idea of temporary office space like actually makes a lot more sense than signing a three-year lease for a Series A company, right? We're millennial Moving behavior makes more sense to do a six-month lease than a two-year, you know, whatever. But he was propelled by others who were in the capital game there. And unfortunately, we were doing incentives at Uber, like here's 20 bucks, and then ended. He was signing five-year leases. Those don't end. So it's very hard if someone's telling you, here's money to step on the gas, a lot of it, more than the world's ever seen, for it to then be your fault to do it, to like actually do it. The world is complicated and you can't paint with a broad brush. We have to be careful about conflating and confusing different personalities that seem of a kind and different companies that seem of a kind, but are actually very different case studies. And so I think WeWork is a terrible example because it is not a real tech company. It is the property management company, as we've all said. And it's hard to understand how scale produces unit economics and how the way that he set up the business model and the leasing agreements leads to any kind of daylight at the end of the day. It's clear, though, that they did some good things, good things that tech companies do in terms of scaling a brand, scaling playbooks, scaling operations and all this kind of stuff. But ultimately, I don't know how you make this kind of asset heavy, capital heavy, economies of scale light business. I don't know how you square that circle. And so it's just a really bad example. And then, you know, there are other case studies that are bad, like Elizabeth Holmes, who just had a vision in her head of this arbitrary drop of blood to do this arbitrary set of tests w without it being connected to any kind of reality and refusing to compromise on any aspect of that that's susceptible to gravity, susceptible to scientific truth. And that's an example of a vision disconnected from reality. And then you have a, a Travis. And we had this conversation before on the show, one of our early episodes, where there are economies of scale, there are software efficiencies, there are trends around fractional ownership of our fractional relationships with assets and network effects and so on. And there's like negative churn. And it's like a founder with a huge vision and engagement with the details and excellence of operational execution. And even if you think of a Steve Jobs as well, incredible ambition and reality distortion field, he was not tempered by reality in his first go around. And then he was humbled and educated through the firing and the coming back. He learned the right lessons and he became the Steve Jobs that we know. Huge ambition, clarity of vision, but with the ability and the temperament to engage with the details with a business that made sense and to make that thing real.
The trick is to take the right lessons from the right examples in history. You don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and you want to learn the right lessons from the right people and for the right businesses. So here's the thing I want to defend founders on against this current VC narrative that like, uh, zero interest rate environment phenomenon. You guys, you dumbass founders spend so much money, blah, blah. That was the game on the field at the time. The game on the field was you had to grow fast. We, the investors didn't care about revenue or CAC or LTV, any of these things. We couldn't give you enough money fast enough to go do what you're doing. You're a founder. You take money. That's kind of like part of your job, right? Like ideally you spend it efficiently, but you're like, the world's crazy right now. I don't know. So I got to do this. The smart ones are the ones who figure it out fast when times turn. But I, I guess the temptations are there and you're like, you took them. So what would happen if Massa never gave him 3 billion or whatever the number yeah. was? I think what we're saying about the zero interest rate period, which I agree with, is, you know, they say money is a hell of a drug. And during that period, like it was laced with fentanyl and everyone just went a bit crazy. Sure. And it was a systemic issue. That's what you're saying. And yeah, I don't disagree with that. I guess I would say the very best founders with the deepest conviction and the best business acumen can take precautions to make sure they don't get carried away with the tide. But yeah, most, most people, like you say, they play the game on the field. And if it happens to be a bad game that leads to bad outcomes for everyone, they're going to play it anyway. And also, we know what would have happened if he didn't do that, right? I discovered co-working very early on when I landed in Silicon Valley in San Francisco. And I don't know if it was invented by, I'm almost certain it wasn't, but I encountered it at this place called Citizen Space, which was created by Chris Messina and his partner at the time, Tara, and my friend, he became one of my best friends in the Valley, Ben Metcalf. And it was like a new model at the time. I don't know if they were the first, but they were amongst the first. And co-working was like the thing to do in Silicon Valley. And there were a lot of co-working spaces and co-working companies. They had a couple of little co-working spaces. So what Adam Newman and WeWork managed to do is say, which this happens a lot, right? Silicon Valley culture, we can scale that globally. We can take that to the whole world. And they took something that was local and they turned it into a global business. And they did it better than all the other co-working spaces. There were a lot of co-working companies. And WeWork is the one that took that global. Now, whether it was appropriate they took it global or they took it globally in the right way, with the right business model, at the right speed, with the right capital, all debatable. But that combination of investors and founder was amongst the only ones to take this nascent idea and scale it globally. And I think, that, I think that's worth at least admiring to some degree and giving it a go, you know, aiming for the moon and seeing what happens. I think it was great. All right, before we wrap up, let's talk about Lyft's earnings mistake that caused the stock to shoot up and then shoot back down. What the hell happened, Emil? Fucking hilarious. Excuse my language. Um, no, that's right. We're at ProFuck podcast here. Okay, so, so <laughs> yesterday I was on CNBC saying Lyft is dead, blah, blah, blah. And at 4 o'clock, they released earnings, 4 o'clock Eastern. And the stock shot from 12 bucks a share to 20 which, like, you know, from a percentage basis, like enormous. And it turns out there was an error oh, no. in their financial statements that said they're going to increase margin by 500 basis points. And they added an extra zero. And so it should have been 50 basis points. <laughs> so it shot back down to like 14. And CMC was covering it like the Fed announcement of like unemployment. Like what dumbasses. 
who didn't read this damned press release and like realize it's like a ridiculous statement lawsuits are coming this sec and it was just a black eye and i was because for a moment when i saw it i was like fuck hey maybe i got lift wrong maybe it's my fault i don't i don't know and then like within a minute it was back down <laughs> by like 40 percent because of like one zero in a press release that they screwed up and the whole news tomorrow is going to be about that and now it's all memefied on twitter you go back on next today the memes on lyft are like coming hard and fast i look i always thought that lyft was the wish version of uber <laughs> that, that chinese app where you order stuff and it looks amazing in the photos but when it arrives it's just like a flat piece of material that has no structure and doesn't look anything like the photo. It's like there's just the cheap budget basement version of the other of the real thing. It's just like you have one job to make the numbers in your press release right. That's your one job as CFO. That's it. To make them accurate. And you put a zero in there and you 10x it. Mm. Has nobody else made a terrible mistake before in their lives though? No, no, I'm sure they have. I'm sure they have. Feel sorry for the person. Oh man. I mean, you're feeling sorry for incompetence. I get I get your vibe. I feel your feels, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's pretty bad, pretty bad. Make sure you got your shit together, folks. All right, Emil, Chris, it's been a hell of a lot of fun as always. Emil, we'll let you get to bed. It was a late recording session. Enjoy the rest of your cabinet. Emil, how can people find you on the internet? I'm at Emil Michael on X. What's X? On X on Twitter. On X on Twitter. At Emil Michael. You're on X right now? Is that what's happening? Dumbest brand change in history. Uh, you can find me at Chris Saad on all social media, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. Give me a follow. I'm at Y Bernstein on Twitter, but I do most of my stuff on LinkedIn where I'm trying to make it a slightly less boring place. So I would love a connector or a follow from startup podcast listeners. And don't forget, guys, if you're listening to the show and getting a lot of value, we ask you to honor the Startup Podcast Pack. Rate us and review us in your favorite podcasting app and give us a follow over on YouTube. And don't forget to give us a shout out on your favorite social network. It helps us grow the show and help more founders like you. Talk again next week. Okay. See you later, guys. Bye-bye. This episode of the Startup Podcast was brought to you by Vanta. Vanta helps businesses get and stay compliant by automating up to 90% of the work for the most in-demand compliance frameworks. With over 200 integrations, you can easily monitor and secure the tools your business relies on. Head to vanta.com slash TSP for 20% off their incredible offering and start unlocking extra revenue today.